most people in the art world, including all of us, really need to look at how we value art versus the people who are making it, the people who are handling it, and realizing that as important and as incredible as this art is, how are we perpetuating inequality in the field by valuing that more than the human life who is bringing it and installing it into the gallery? Last week, we published a five-part series on the realities facing art handlers, and boy, were people shocked. For decades, anecdotal evidence had been leaking out and seeping through, suggesting to many of us that the condition art handlers are forced to endure are, well, to put it lightly, troubling. Occasionally, we hear stories about deaths, injuries, and other terrible news but there's been no concerted effort to document and discuss these things. That changed. Reporter Zachary Small and editor Jasmine Weber have presented us a thorough 10,000 word report that was shocking for many who've never been forced to think about the labor that goes into the exhibitions and performances we all enjoy. Zachary spoke to over 40 art handlers, and you can read the whole series on hyperallergic.com. Some of the facts, needless to say, were shocking, but the most disturbing part for me was the lack of guidelines at institutions, art galleries, and organizations of all types. There seems to be a lot to discuss after the series dropped, so I asked Zachary and Jasmine to join me on this episode of the Art Movements podcast so we can discuss the series and the difficulties of reporting on the world of art. Hey, Zachary. Hey, Jasmine. Hi. Hi. Okay, Zachary, you just dropped a big series on hyperallergic last week on art handlers. Do you want to get people a little up to speed on what that was all about? Yeah, so over the summer, I interviewed dozens of art handlers across the country about the state of their field and mainly the health and safety issues that they come across every day, but also labor issues such as wage and overtime. And so now the thing about that series is I feel like for years and maybe even decades, people have been whispering about the way art handlers have been treated, but nobody's really done a story like this. Why do you think that is? Right. Well, one of the reasons why I started reporting on this story is because I was growing not frustrated, but I had noticed that a lot of art reporting focuses on the top of the industry, you right. know, the really, the glitz and the glamour, but also the controversy, the war and candors. And it was a moment for me where I wanted to step back and say, okay, but what is actually undergirding the system? And how are those people being treated? How are people at the bottom of the totem pole being treated compared to the top? Right. And so what did you find? That they're often treated very poorly. There are some exceptions, but across the board, virtually every single art handler that I spoke to mentioned some horrific injury that they had sustained over the course of their career. You know, even when I posted the story on my own Facebook page, people were like, I almost lost a foot. I almost lost a finger. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were all these like really horrific stories. You're like, yeah. why are these not more central to what we're talking about? Right. And those were the stories. Those horrific stories were ones that we really did center in this piece. But actually what caught me by surprise and what I'm often interested in is more of the long-term effects, these sort of subtle injuries that 
happen and take time to develop that we don't really hear about. So a lot of art handlers also spoke about hernias that developed, right. or you know maybe they handled something wrong or something fell on their foot, and you know it, sometimes it's hard to tell if you've broken a toe. Right. People don't realize it, but you'll realize it months later as your foot is in constant pain. And it's then, of course, harder to get insurance claims or workers comp for that. So, Jasmine, what do you think? You were the you were the primary editor on this series. What was most surprising for you? What was the part of the story that doesn't sync with the rest of the image of the art worlds that we like to think about? For me as the editor and also as a reader, the most shocking headline and the most shocking part of the story was learning that an art handler actually saved an original copy signed by Lincoln of the Emancipation Proclamation from Mountain Dew. Learning that these art handlers, because of their status at a lower level in the art world, they're not afforded the proper information to do their jobs. Right. It's almost as if they're not trusted, their expertise, despite so many of them having graduated with degrees in art and art history, they're not treated as equals to the curators or to the programmers. And they're not given vital information like you're carrying a copy of the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, I think all of the injuries, minor and enormous, were extremely shocking. But I think more than anything, it became very clear to me that art handlers are extremely patronized in their field, despite how vital they are right. in the day-to-day -day operations of museums and galleries. For those who may not know about the Emancipation Proclamation, it was the story of uh, the art handler in a truck who may have accidentally, like there was a spilling, am I correct? This is a bottle <laughs> of Mountain Dew. Somebody spilled uh, Mountain Dew. As the story goes, you know, the Smithsonian, which also handles the National Archives, contracts a lot of their art handling and shipping out to different companies. They do that for a variety of reasons, one of which is that they can pay those contracted employees less. So, you know, if you're working for the federal government, there's a, a minimum wage that you can get, and it's much nicer usually than the minimum wage. So he was getting paid, you know, $13, $16 an hour, went to the National Archives, said, hey, there's only an empty vitrine in this truck. Are you sure there's no artifacts on board? And, and he says that he was assured there was nothing else on board. Well, they stopped on the way to New York at a Wawa convenience store. You know, they got snacks, they got soda. Somebody spilled a Mountain Dew next to this, what appeared to be a laptop case. So the art handler I spoke to dove and saved it. But what he realized was this wasn't a laptop case. This was a specialty document bag. And inside of it was the copy of the Emancipation Proclamation. Wow. I mean, the whole story is just unbelievable. Right. Unbelievable. So... Of course, in reporting a story like this, I have to go to the National Archives and say, hey, did you know about this? They said that they hadn't heard. And I, I think that's really interesting in terms of the information breakdown. You know, on one level, yeah, of course, art handlers aren't going to have the same decision-making capabilities of a curator or a director of a museum. And most art handlers I spoke to understand that, of course, you know, yeah, that, that isn't necessarily their job. But to be kept out of the loop when you're handling objects of national heritage. <sighs> Unbelievable. Right, it's a dangerous job and you don't wanna be the person who destroyed the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation with Mountain Dew. Or the person that had to put it on the roof of their car to dry it out, you know, at that right. point, you're like, what do you do at that point when you discover that? Right. So is this common for art handlers to not know what they're actually handling, Zachary? What did you find? It is 
uncommon unless you're working with, I mean, this is like the top of the industry we're talking. We're talking the Emancipation Proclamation. But yeah, particular to DC, this is more common where you don't necessarily know what you're handling or you will only know precisely the object that you're going to work with, like minutes to hours before you actually get it in your hands. Right. How hard was it to get art handlers to Mm -hmm. talk to you, Zachary? Yeah, I mean, I would say in terms of arts journalism, you know, we're working in an industry known for its obliqueness, both in financials and labor. That's what makes it so interesting to report and also sometimes really difficult. Mm -hmm. So what I found in, in doing this piece, though, is out of anyone I've ever talked to, art handlers are willing to talk. I mean, the situations they're in overwhelmingly are pretty bad. They're underpaid. They're overworked. And also, their vested interest is different. A lot of art handlers get into this industry because they love art and they've studied art. So they really see the whole system as much as they're getting hurt. They see the system as being dangerous for the art as well. So they want to say something. They want to see the industry improve. So why do you think most of the industry are like people who are artists that are doing this on the side rather than professionals that are full-time art handlers? Because Mm -hmm. one of the things in your story I think that was most shocking to me was the Sotheby's story. You know, for those who may not know, Sotheby's, the major auction house, a few years ago, essentially union busted their union of art handlers that was a predominantly black and brown art handlers. And slowly over the time, they've sort of replaced them all with like young white guys, essentially. I mean, anyway, that just infuriated me partly, Mm -hmm. but it's also just, it made me wonder, like, because those people who are being replaced were professional art handlers full time. And not that, of course, the others aren't professionals, but they were like artists slash art handlers. And Mm -hmm. why do you think that happens? Yeah. So not on the Sotheby's uh, union controversy from a couple years ago. So what really happened was those older art handlers who are majority black and Latinx, they got a buyout, a pretty substantial buyout, actually, by all accounts, to leave those jobs. Most of those men, and they were majority men. I think they were all men, actually. I think at that point, you're yeah. right. They were all men. Yeah. They'd never seen that big amount of money in their life. So, of course, you're going to take it, especially if you're sort of at the end of your working days as a manual laborer. Yeah. But what happened was, as you said, there was a huge shift where they started hiring more people from art school and predominantly white men. And that's kind of across the board. The industry is predominantly staffed by white men from art school. I just find that so unusual, you know? just wondering if you have any insight on that matter because it just seems like a, you know, a peculiar sort of circumstance. What's happening here, it's not only that it's white men coming into these jobs, it's also about class. It's a Mm -hmm. class-based issue of who's being pushed out of a job and who's coming in. By and large, every art handler I talked to came from a lower income, middle income family, mm-hmm. you know? And we know this, we know from studies that in order to succeed in the art world, you're probably gonna have to come from a wealthy, high income family. Right. If not, and I think we've all experienced this to some degree, you mm-hmm. come into the art world. And one of the things when I talk about this industry a lot. I talk about it as the big lie. The big lie of the art world is that, you know, anyone can succeed here. We are pro-progress, pro-social justice. But when you come down to the nuts and bolts of it, that's not happening. That's not happening in most institutions across the globe in the arts. And this is a case of that. So you go to art school, you want to become an artist, then you realize that studios are pretty expensive, especially in New York, where you kind of need to be if you're going to make it big. Right. Or at least building a network. Absolutely. Especially if you want to be a young artist and have some sort of career. 
it's very, very expensive. Well, how are you going to do that? How do you do that if you have a BFA in painting or sculpture right. or even an MFA? Well, you're basically qualified to handle art, maybe to right. teach. And those are kind of the two avenues people will take unless they take a job outside of the industry, which by all accounts of people I've talked to, they recommend taking a job outside of the industry right. to save yourself. But yeah, so it becomes, I don't want to call it a trap because people do like art handling. Absolutely. Some but, people are excellent at it as well. Right. But in terms of money and in terms of people that are trying to make it as an artist, it does kind of become a trap where they're forced to make money, but it's not enough money to sustain themselves, right. but they no longer have the skills to go somewhere else. Absolutely. Jasmine, what do you think? So I think when it comes to this saga on art handling, Really what's being highlighted is the invisible labor that so many arts workers take for granted. I think that as Zachary mentioned, so many people who are entering the arts field are coming from wealthier families. So they're afforded an opportunity to enter into these curatorial fellowships and into these fellowships in education and, and programming that are excellent and that are vital and necessary, but that are severely underpaid. And a lot of the time, the people who are not able to accept those positions because they're only offering $28,000 a year are going and they're setting up these exhibitions that the world is enjoying and that curators, while they're not afforded enough credit for the research and the important work that they do, mm -hmm. art handlers are absolutely invisible in the field. They're almost never recognized. They're never actually seen. One thing that I thought was so interesting that Zachary came across while they were doing the research on this piece was so many campaigns about art handling actually hire models, professional models to come in and pretend to set up these <laughs> exhibitions. And I think that that just speaks volumes to the fact that nobody really wants to see the people that are doing the work behind the scenes. I think what also stuck out to me about the Sotheby's union lockout was this fact that these older black and latinx men who were full-time art handlers working for Sotheby's providing for themselves or their families or whoever it may be they were offered this buyout and now they've been replaced by younger white men predominantly who don't have the same stakes often not for everyone but for most of them they're not necessarily providing for a family they're providing for themselves so that they can also rent out a studio or so that they can right. buy art supplies which is completely valid. I think that replacing these black and brown older men with younger white male art handlers gave Sotheby's an opportunity to continue to leave these workers in precarious positions mm -hmm. because the stakes were a little bit lower for them. And also it allowed them to refuse these men who had been working for Sotheby's for years who had proper training. Seniority. Um, yeah. Things, yeah. It allowed them to say, okay, here's your one-time payout. Now we don't have to offer you health insurance and yeah. we don't have to continue treating you as if you're in a senior position because they have been there for quite right. a long time and they're completely vital to what this organization does. Part of me thinks hiring like these, you know, artists, aspiring sort of figures also it's kind of what the art world does best, which is kind of create these precarity or this promise of something more. Do you know, like they're all going to make it big. So this is just a stepping stone or whatever. But then the art world isn't providing for them, like to have the foundation from which to build, as opposed to like these professional full-time art handlers that had no other aspirations. I mean, they have to worry about the healthcare and their children's healthcare and these types of things. It creates a really peculiar dynamic. 
Right, and of course this is a problem across the board in the industry, in museums especially. What actually started, what really started this investigation was a tip that I received from the people at the Museum Transparency and Salary Initiative that's kind of sparked. They're the people, you probably know them best by their Excel spreadsheet on Google, <laughs> which listed salaries for, I think, surely over 2,000 different jobs at museums, now I think across the world. And what you see when you go through them are very low salaries for people at the top positions at museums. So you have to question both where the money is going, how it's being appropriated, and how might we create a better system in the future. Right. Absolutely. So I have a couple of questions, Zachary, because I think we were talking a little bit about this, but how prominent are female art handlers? You had a couple of art handlers who are women, quoted in your article, one of which was anonymous, I believe. Mm -hmm. Now, how common did you find that? And did you find that there were any particular issues that women were talking to you about? Yeah, so there are a handful of female art handlers mentioned in the piece. There are also a lot that spoke on background and didn't want to be named precisely because the field is majority white men. And there's a lot of misogyny in the field as well. So a couple of art handlers, and one is kind of quoted in the piece, but let's say a handful of art handlers actually talked about, you know, being called baby or right. honey, sweetie, not being able to lift things when that's precisely their job. That's why they're there. Uh, so it becomes a really frustrating You mean place. people wouldn't allow them lift things? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's mm -hmm. crazy. And did they say there were any other specific issues? Like, did they feel like they weren't getting, you know, the hours or the overtime? Like, were they being passed over? Was there any conversation about that? Um, they wouldn't attribute it to their gender, but mm -hmm. I, I think that overall, in terms of hours and overtime, I mean, no art handlers really get paid overtime, which is a huge legal Except issue. Except at the Smithsonian, it seems. Yes. Right. <laughs> it depends whether or not they're, they're there with the Smithsonian or on contract, of course. Got it. These are huge issues that are happening. In terms of hours, a lot of many, many art handlers, specifically at the auction houses, said that if they refused a schedule because they had some sort of time conflict, that they would kind of be put on this unofficial blacklist where they wouldn't get another schedule. They wouldn't be able to get work there. And even with the Guggenheim, both male and female art handlers were saying, you know, they'd be contracted for work for two weeks for an install. They'd show up and they'd be told, oh, sorry, we overstaffed, you're not needed, and be let go without pay. And that's two weeks of work that they had scheduled out of wow. their lives to come into the city to right. do. And that's why the Guggenheim is also trying to unionize right now, right? right? So these issues are all coming to head at the same time as you see protests happening at the Whitney uh, and more scrutiny at the top. There's right. no scrutiny at the bottom. Right. Is there anything in the story, Jasmine, that, you know, going forward, you'd love to see some more reporting on? Is there, because, you know, this is such a massive topic. I mean, uh, Zachary, for all the work he did and, and the team did, has really just scratched the surface in some ways. Any thoughts on that? So I think that the general response has been so positive. And as you mentioned earlier, Hrog, so many people are coming out and saying, oh yeah, I have my own story. I think that it would be really fascinating to look into the art handlers from the 80s and the 90s who are now working in, in a different field or who are now working in a different part of the art world mm -hmm. um, and seeing what kind of stories have pushed them either completely out of the art world what those extremes were right. and whether or not these people who maybe are working as curators or as full-time artists now if they're willing to go deeper into how truly 
extreme the field can get. Since the article has come out, we've gotten a ton of responses from people explaining their own stories or stories that they've heard from friends. And I think that this story really has the potential to grow into something even bigger than what it was. It was incredibly popular in this first 10,000 word, five part version of itself. But there's an incredible resource in these comment sections in these people who are having these discourses on Twitter who are not only who are not only discussing it amongst themselves those who are or have been art handlers but it's really come to the attention of people who are at the top and I'm hoping that what comes out of this article are people looking at themselves and the reactions that they've had in their own workplaces to art handlers and improving those relationships and advocating on behalf of these art handlers in their own workplaces. I think that one one story that really stuck out for me in this series was the art handler who, along with a colleague, was in an elevator shaft that crashed. And while he miraculously came out with little injury, his colleague was rushed to the hospital. And the reaction among the gallery workers was, is the art okay? And I think that most people in the art world, including all of us, really need to look at how we value art versus the people who are making it, the people who are handling it, and realizing that as important and as incredible as this art is, how are we perpetuating inequality in the field by valuing that more than the human life who is bringing it and installing it into the gallery? That's a great point. I will say in terms of the feedback we've gotten so far, and you know, it was only a week ago, so I'm sure we'll be seeing more and more uh, in the next couple weeks. But as much as my inbox has been flooded with emails from people telling their own stories or kind of related stories from different fields, the one reaction I really haven't seen a lot is from artists themselves and from working artists. And I think that silence is really deafening. I also haven't really heard or seen anything from people at the top of the industry in terms of like bigger curators and directors of museums. Right. That silence is also deafening. You know, one of the galleries named in the piece is Gladstone Gallery, where they had not an art handler, but a construction worker lose a finger in the gallery while carrying a boiler. And then the art handlers who were there, who were trying to help, then were tasked with kind of shuffling the pieces of the boiler to the side so they can continue their install. You know, not to put someone on the spot, but Wangachi Mutu's gallery is Gladstone Gallery. Right. She just, as this article came out, she just opened an amazing, very important facade commission at the Met. But those artists who are related to these galleries, you know, David Zwerner's in the piece as well. Right. MoMA PS1 is in the piece. Why aren't they talking? Why aren't they talking? Yeah, why? Why do you think? Because, I mean, I have to say this is frustrating. Because the truth is, a lot of these art handlers end up becoming artist assistants. I mean, this is not... Well, they usually have been artist assistants, actually. Yeah, so this is, obviously, this is all the same pool of people, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like these are aliens that came from outer space. But why aren't they? Why aren't they speaking up? Well, like we mentioned before, reporting in the arts is extremely difficult. I think artists... Again, we give them a lot of credit for inspiring us and kind of leading the charge in terms of progress and social justice. But as business people, uh, they're pretty individualistic, I would say, in terms of the reporting that I've done. This is a small industry at the top, and if you badmouth someone, there can be repercussions. So that that is real, but at the same time, you know, I, I think... <laughs> 
the snag is if you want to actually be producing a message and if you want to urge social progress as the vast majority of artists today do, you need to speak up and you need to speak up for your friends and coworkers. Right. Uh, but we haven't really seen that yet. I mean, the other thing is, I think some people really know what are some of the worst offenders for some of these galleries. And there's this sort of whispers that people like are talking amongst themselves, like so-and-so doesn't, you know, it's not such a great gig and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. What's that? I mean, what did you find? You know, art handlers do talk to each other. I would say that they definitely know where not to work, where to work and who, who are, are the worst offenders. The worst offenders. Well, I guess to kind of take that question and turn it into something yeah. else. Yeah. A lot of these places, or for the reporting of the story, it wasn't just one art handler telling me something. Mm -hmm. Even though someone might be named, or we might say, like, according to this source, you know, there are multiple people behind every one of these claims. So mm -hmm. we talked about Gladstone before, you know, there are multiple people telling me that Gladstone was a scary place to work. Right. You know, there are many other galleries that didn't make the cut in terms of the reported article that I was told multiple times was not a great place to work. Got it. You know, so these things are definitely known and they circulate, but there's no sort of one thread of art handlers saying work here, don't work there. So it's really easy. And, and this is a recommendations referral based industry. Right. So you don't really know until you're in the thick of it. And so are there any guidelines anywhere? You know, it's like ADAA came back to you and said they don't have guidelines, and that's Art Dealers Association of America. Is anybody trying to draw up any of these things? So in terms of like bigger gallery or museum-led organizations, nobody has specific regulations in terms of art handlers. They do have like general employee guidelines, which are, you know, your boilerplate, treat everybody right. nicely. Art handlers have tried to make those guidelines themselves. So the Art Handlers Alliance of New York does have sort of like a bill of rights for art handlers working, which is great. And not to denigrate that work, but it hasn't actually been taken up by any institution. So while it's out there and floating around, and I think people vaguely know about it, if you don't have that institutional backing or the support of this larger body, where does it go? So what do you think, Jasmine? What, what, what have you learned from this series? Like, what is it that you think are some of the takeaways? What do you hope develops out of this kind of reporting? I really hope that what comes out of this article is the gallery workers who are not necessarily directly involved in the setup of exhibitions advocating for their coworkers to be working in safe conditions. The curators and the artists who are directly involved in these exhibitions to say that they want to have a part of the setup process so that they can see the conditions that these art handlers are working under. I think that for me, every gallery or museum that I've gone to since Zachary started working on this piece, all I can think about is what kind of process the art handlers right. have gone through. Right. I went to a photography exhibition and I was like, oh, I hope that was easy. <laughs> um, so I think that it's definitely been eye-opening for me to pay attention to something that I never really paid attention to before. Even during undergrad, like interning at galleries and seeing the art handlers in the gallery almost every day, I still never really, and while I never heard about any injuries or anything, I, I never really thought about when there is a big show of sculptures or there is yeah. like a new wall that needs to go up, 
those people are essentially construction workers for the gallery. And I never think about the danger that goes along with that. I mean, construction workers are wearing hard hats and like steel-toed boots and et cetera. And I never saw that in my personal experience. And, and I think that what Zach reported about that lack of training and that lack of proper equipment being right. given to these people, it's definitely something that I've had a lot more on my mind when going into the exhibition space. So I think that one thing that Hyperallergic is really dedicated to that I think that this series did so well is bringing that invisible labor to the forefront and bringing it into people's minds. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I feel the same way now. It's like, oh, I walk into a gallery and I was always concerned, especially of those big sculptures you see, you're like, how did they get these in? And how did, but I feel like those nuances, I also wonder, it's like, okay, great, you guys put this together, but you know, were people, did they really have to? Uh, were people maimed? Yes, were people maimed, injured? Because you know, one of the things you touch on, Zachary, I think is a really good point is, what are all those stories of people who left the industry that we don't know about, mm -hmm. who 20 years ago ended up retiring because they injured their lower backs or they injured something or they had, you know, a real serious disability they're still working with? A couple of people you did interview did talk about those chronic pains and those chronic things that they have afterwards. And I'm just, it's just amazing how much of this industry we're a part of just sort of disposes of these people. And then we never hear about them again. Mm -hmm. So kudos to you, Zachary and Thank Jasmine you. for, you know, putting together this great series. The music for this episode is part of a special live recording of Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan that was released this past summer by Peter Gabriel's Real World Records, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. To mark the occasion, they released this previously unheard recording by the Pakistani musical legend, who's widely considered one of the most important artists in world music. Thanks to Real World Records for allowing us to use this rare recording. You can find the live album, which includes remixes, on Real World Records. I'm Harag Vartanian, and this is the Art Movements podcast from Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening. Allahu, 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 Allahu.